0: Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly, with you in studio Amir Tibon. Later on today's show, we'll hear the stories of Israelis who went to fight in Ukraine against Putin's invading army. But before that… Our guest today is Iran Etzion, the former deputy head of the Israeli National Security Council, today the CEO of the digital participation platform Raise It. Hi Iran. Hi, hi. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. You have been very critical in the last few days of uh, Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's uh, attempts to supposedly mediate between Russia and Ukraine in the ongoing war. Some people look at what he's doing and say, well, look, this is beautiful and wonderful. He's trying to bring peace to this terrible war in Eastern Europe. What do you see when you look at Bennett's actions?
1: Well, we have to look at this uh, so-called mediation initiative in the wider context of Israel's overall position vis-a-vis this terrible war, because obviously they're connected. So let's start with that. Essentially, you know, I'm trying to picture the... uh, Israeli NSC, where I have served for over eight years, preparing the cabinet discussions or the even uh, smaller discussions with Prime Minister Bennett on this issue of where exactly should Israel position itself in this really historic geopolitical conflict. And essentially, you know, without oversimplifying, I would say there are three options. One would be probably the most obvious and we'll elaborate on that, Uh, aligning with our natural allies, the U.S., the European Union, the free world, the Western world. You know, we always celebrate being a democracy.
0: Everything that Israel likes to see itself as part of.
1: Exactly. Our image, or at least the one that we try to project both outside and mostly also uh, in the inside. So that would be option one. The other option, extreme option, would be to align with Russia, and I would explain, if I were in that position today, I would explain the pros and cons of of each of those two options. And then, as always, there is a variety of uh, in-between options, which have multiple nuances, but essentially call for the continuation of Israel's policy before the conflict. Because while historically we were aligned with the US, what Netanyahu did, and this is part of his legacy, which is often overlooked, was to distance Israel from that historic geopolitical posture and to try and position it in a, quote-unquote, comfortable, non-aligned position, where on the one hand we continue to enjoy everything that the U.S. showers on us, $3.5 billion a year, F-35s, and so on and so forth. And on the other hand, we uh, approach more and more and engage more and more countries, authoritarian countries such as Russia and China, or the uh, EU members that have become more and more authoritarian, such as Hungary and Poland. And the, the, Bolso- the Putin-Bolsonaro-Orban
0: axis. Exactly.
1: So this was Netanyahu's strategy. And unfortunately, in my mind, what Bennett is doing on this issue, as he's is doing on almost any other issue, including the Palestinian issue and the Iranian issue and so on, he's simply continuing the same policy. This was true before the conflict, and it continues during the conflict, as if this conflict is just another you know, event which should not reposition Israel's strategy. But, yeah.
0: but from his point of view, Bennett comes and says, look, we have Russia as a neighbor here in Syria, and we have to be mindful of that, and we cannot allow ourselves to get into any kind of uh, friction or tension with Putin.
1: Well, to me, this is wrong on at least two-folds. The first is mixing strategy with operations, whereas obviously Israel's overall alignment with the U.S. and the Europeans is probably the most strategic issue that Israel and that, that any Israeli government and Israeli prime minister should be very careful not to erode and not to change this is really the the foundation the core of our national security and international security policy and on the other hand you have yes this operational tactical consideration over Syrian skies which Israel did without for a considerable amount of time I would argue could also do without today if for some reason Russia were to stop it plus I also think Russia would not stop it so quickly because the fact that it exists is not because it's an israeli interest it is because it is a joint interest of both russia and israel
0: basically the russians also don't want the iranians to be too strong in syria and so it's a bit comfortable for them as well that israel is doing these military strikes from yes, the air
1: yes plus in very crude terms and the russians do not overlook crude terms each system that we destroy each SA system or each armored carrier or whatnot that we destroy owned by whoever in Syria gets replaced by the Russian military industries. Hmm. So it's an, it's a win-win for the Russians.
0: And so when you look at this argument that we have to be very, very considerate of the Russians, you're not convinced. And then when Bennett goes to Moscow, on uh, saturday and uh, amazes the world with the news on saturday night that he met putin and later we get a leak from the ukrainian side later denied but a leak accusing israel of basically trying to almost tell the ukrainians to accept the russian proposal you're disturbed by all of that together
1: yeah let's look at this so-called mediation initiative and and try to analyze it first it is Part and parcel of this overall strategy of so-called neutrality or in between or you know trying not to get wet in the rain, whatever they want to call it, and and it harmonizes very nicely, you know, because one justifies the other. If you want to be the intermediary, you need to be non-aligned, and if you if you are non-aligned, you can position yourself or try to push yourself as a, a mediating country. So the question is, if we put aside the overall mistake, according to to my perception of the overall strategy, let's try and, and look only at the mediation effort. And the first thing, of course, that we need to ask is what does Israel potentially stand to gain and what does Israel potentially stand to lose from this initiative? And unfortunately, again, in my mind, many of the Israeli analysts, commentators, and so on, uh, were convinced, probably by Bennett himself or people working with him, that um, you know, this is a win-win situation. Whatever we do, once we have positioned ourselves in this military role, we cannot lose. And that's an obvious mistake because there's a lot that we can lose and uh, some of it we already lost. Like what? First of all, the perception of Israel as a fully aligned U.S. and Western country. Again, we, we lost it probably before when we, for example, refused the American request to uh, vote with them in the or to sponsor the text that they proposed to the uh, UN Security Council but we are strengthening now this impression that we want to be and we are actively invested in not being aligned and the more we try to mediate the more we strengthen this impression also our relations with ukraine we we are already seeing signs increasing signs that these relations were hurt by the mediation effort and by the positions that allegedly Prime Minister Bennett took which are interpreted by the Ukrainians maybe by some others as well as too pro Putin and it might have also been the other way around okay if we if he were to take positions that are too uh, pro Ukrainians he would have soured his relations with Putin So rather than a win-win, it very quickly might turn into a lose-lose.
0: Well, the Americans have some experience from their uh, efforts to negotiate in our part of the world that sometimes eventually both sides are just angry at you.
1: True. So we stand to lose a lot. And what do we stand to gain? Well, to believe that uh, Putin would choose from all people and countries around the world, uh, Prime Minister Bennett and the state of Israel as the ones who will get the global prize this.
0: The Nobel Peace Prize, really.
1: <laughs> yeah, true. The the next Nobel Peace Prize for mediating between Russia and Ukraine, I think, is zero. If Putin is interested in such an agreement, and that's obviously a big if, why would he choose to give this this prize to Bennett and Israel? He has multiple other candidates that make much more sense from a, from a Russian perspective. And that's probably also true even about Zelensky and U- Ukraine. Uh, they could give it to Germany. They could give it to the US. They...
0: But then why do we see Zelensky and Putin continuing to talk to Bennett all the time, another phone call, another meeting? What explains that?
1: Part, obviously, of international diplomacy and and politics is the charade, the visibility. And they will continue to do it as long as it serves some purpose in that domain, and both for Putin and for Zelensky, and, and even for the Americans, Even though, and again, this is a huge mistake, probably, as far as we know so far, they were not uh, informed before the initiative, and they were not fully coordinated before. They presented uh, a different, again, uh, posture afterwards for obvious reasons, but as far as I can understand so far, they were not coordinated with, and that's a mistake. But anyway, both Putin and both Zelensky and the Americans all have an interest now in showing that there is some sort of engagement going on, either be it uh, via Bennett, via Erdogan, via Schultz, via whoever, because, you know, this is part of the overall uh, management of the conflict. They want to show that there are multiple mediators and multiple efforts and so on. But again, I have to say it cautiously, because obviously none of us, including myself, don't have the full picture. I don't think that these negotiations uh, really matter in terms of real strategy, and I think probably there are other uh, more serious negotiations that are ongoing, and obviously they're not between Russia and Ukraine, they're between Russia and the Americans, and Russia and the EU, Germany, and so on, who exactly are, uh, are running these negotiations. It's an interesting question. On the American side, my bet would be in terms of uh, people who are really negotiating with Putin would first be on Bill Burns, a seasoned American diplomat who I know a little bit personally, who served both as ambassador in Moscow and in other iterations of his long and impressive career as a professional diplomat, headed the strategic dialogue between Israel and the U.S., led also the secret negotiations with Iran. So I think he's probably involved and there are probably others. But this is the the real game. It's all covert. None of it has been exposed so far and probably will be exposed if and when it succeeds. Uh,
0: This reminds me of an article that uh, Alon Pinkas wrote for us at Haaretz saying that that Putin's real negotiations will not be with Zelensky, they will be with Biden, if and when. Of course. And when we look at the American and the Russian side, looking a bit at the bigger picture, do they even want an agreement to end this war? Because there is a cynical argument to make that maybe for America, it's really good that Putin is drowning in the Ukrainian mud, his economy is collapsing, he's becoming more and more isolated on the world stage, even uh, with Bennett going to Moscow, uh, really the only leader to have gone there uh, recently from uh, from any other uh, uh, country. So maybe the Americans want to see this continue in the current situation.
1: Two things I want to say about that. First, if we try again to go to 30,000 feet and look at the geopolitical picture, what we would see is that this century is the Chinese century. It's not the American century and certainly not the Russian century. It was obvious before the conflict that the US and China, they they are developing a new rivalry which will shape the the new world order. And China is the, the rising power, obviously, and the US is the declining power. Putin obviously understood that, and I think from his perspective, a lot of this uh, European war is actually about China, Hmm. because for him, it's about repositioning himself as a peer on this uh, top global stage between the US and China. He realized that the new world order was about to be shaped without him, and he needed to kind of demonstrate his uh, spoiling capability and the need of both the Chinese and the Americans to take him and Russia into consideration. So that would be uh, point number one. So that's the first thing, this triumvirate, which now becomes a quartet, because the EU has suddenly, very impressively, very surprisingly uh, repositioned itself as as an upcoming superpower, which will play a role. And we're seeing a new kind of dichotomy, global dichotomy between the US and the EU on the one hand, China and and Russia on the other. And the second point, which is also a major point, and I have to give credit here to Biden and his uh, strategists. From day one, when they came to power, they redraw the strategic map along new lines. And they essentially said, and we can go back and see, they wrote about it, they spoke about it, and they were absolutely on point. And this was their lesson from the Trump term and from the Russian meddling in the American elections and from the rivalry between China and the US and they essentially said listen this is not a reiteration of the cold war and this is not just a globalized market economy with two kind of counterweights pulling between China and and the US this is much deeper and much bigger this is essentially a civilizational war between the free world led by the U.S., between democracies, liberal democracies, and yes, the world order that the U.S. and the Europeans created after World War II, on the one hand, and the authoritative regimes led by China, anti-democratic, anti-liberal, extremely dangerous, meddling also not only on the world stage, but in our backyard. And for them, this was the defining battle of of the 21st century. And what we're seeing now from their perspective, to which I concur, is really a demonstration of how correct and how powerful and how significant this understanding or analysis of the global stage was.
0: I have so many questions to take uh, the conversation to. Let's start with this one. If it is really a a world conflict over democracy and liberal values. Is the democratic liberal side uh, ready for the price that it would take to fight it? I mean, everybody right now is full of praise for Ukraine and for the defiance and the resolve of the Ukrainian people, but uh, it doesn't seem like the West is eager to join them at this point. All we are seeing is country after country saying, yes, we will place very devastating sanctions on Putin um, and maybe we'll send some ammunition to Ukraine, but at the same time, even the MiG initiative, the idea of sending these planes from Poland ukraine was shot down over the fear of antagonizing putin too much
1: yes this is a very popular view and while of course i cannot cancel it i i don't subscribe to it and why because I, i think we have seen a tremendous transformation in the european union mostly but also to a certain extent in the u.s and the way they have been able to so quickly And so effectively bring about unprecedented level of sanctions, economic sanctions, trade sanctions, financial sanctions, legal sanctions against Putin, against his cronies, against uh, Russian institutions. And the way that essentially all global companies from all sectors simply went along, even though it runs against their interests, theoretically, you know, they lost a lot of uh, assets and a lot of income and so on. And I think it surprised many people the way that they simply jumped on the wagon. In, so,
0: in, including Putin, probably himself. I don't, th- I don't think he anticipated this kind of uh, response so quick and so powerful on the economic front.
1: Absolutely. So I think they, they're not getting enough credit for that. Certainly not in the Israeli discourse. And we are, as always, unfortunately, focused on you know, the military side of it and how many airplanes and how many tanks and so on. This is not the bigger story. Okay, I would go even further to say that Putin might be able, it's very possible that he, if it's not stopped by a truce agreement or inter, an interim agreement, it's very possible that he will win the ground war or the military side of the war in Ukraine, whether he occupies the entire country or not. Of course, it's important, but essentially he might, within a relatively short period of time, be able to win militarily.
0: Although even that, I mm-hmm. think, would not be according to the original expectations that Ukraine would collapse within days. We are talking on day, I think, 17 or 18 of the war, um, and Kiev is still standing.
1: True. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting question, you know, what exactly was the military plan? I'm, I'm still not sure. There's a conventional wisdom that, he, that that the military failed, and I'm not sure about that. But regardless, well, the point is different. The point is that even if he wins the military war, he will lose strategically because if his economy collapses, and this is right now the more probable scenario, it's only a question of time, and probably a relatively short period of time, in which his economy totally collapses in a way in which we haven't seen. Not in Iran, not in North Korea, not in any other country that was under sanctions. And this will obviously have huge political implications. It sets a very important precedent. So I think... And Tom Friedman also wrote it. This is the equivalent of Hiroshima and Nagasaki on the economic and financial side, and the the amount of damage, the depth of the damage that Russia has already incurred, is is amazing and unprecedented. So I wouldn't sell Biden and the Europeans short on that. On top of that, we also know that both the Germans and some other European uh, Union members and uh, potential future NATO members like you know Sweden, Finland, and so on, they have all within a matter of weeks, changed a strategy which was in place for decades. You know, obviously, the most staggering example is Switzerland. It was neutral since 1815. And when you look in any dictionary, when you search neutrality, you see Switzerland. They broke it, just like that, and joined sanctions. And the Germans, I engaged in many strategic dialogues with with the Germans. We were always amazed by the level of their pacificity. You know, it was like in their DNA. And they simply dumped it overnight. And Finland and Sweden, with their own neutrality and refusal to even contemplate joining NATO.
0: Yeah, we, we have a great article about that on haaretz.com. Uh, David Stavro, our correspondent in Stockholm, wrote uh, this weekend about Sweden and Finland suddenly considering to join NATO after refusing the very idea of, you know, even thinking about it for decades.
1: Exactly. So the world has turned upside down in an amazing way, and mostly if we look at it through the prism of major and non-major European countries, NATO or non-NATO members. So to take all that and say, well, you know, they are still weak, they're still disorganized, they're still not doing the right thing, I I think is very typical for Israelis, but completely wrong in historic terms.
0: So let's go back to the Israeli question here then. If it is this kind of big war on the global stage between democracies and autocracies, freedom and tyranny, what would you expect Israel to do at this moment?
1: As I already said, Israel should have aligned from day one with the right side of history, with the free world, with our traditional and strategic allies, the US, Germany, France, the UK, the EU. This is where our future lies, most definitely. We don't want to be on the other side, with some respect, Chinese, Russians, North Koreans, Iranians, Syrians, and so on. It should have been obvious. uh, And the fact that uh, Bennett and and the government, and I blame here the entire government and the cabinet, it's not only Bennett. The problem with them is that most, if not all of them, are Netanyahu disciples. And what they know about foreign policy and diplomacy is what they learned from Netanyahu. And I think if Netanyahu were still in power, he would follow exactly the same policy that they're following. And this is why he's so silent, because there's really no way for him to uh, differentiate himself from what the government is doing. And it's very unfortunate, because it's completely miscalculated on, on the strategic level. We should absolutely align with our strategic allies. We are already paying a price. We'll pay a steeper and steeper price. Next in line is the issue of sanctions. Israel should have joined the sanctions already. And what I'm afraid will happen again is that we will only do it, you know, belatedly. Everybody will see that we are dragging our feet and we're trying to avoid it. Both the national sanctions on Russian institutions and the personal sanctions of the oligarchs, many many of them uh, got their Israeli citizenship in shady ways, and their monies have been laundered here in all sorts of also shady ways, including in the Israeli media, and all of that. Again, one of the basic fallacies of Israeli thinking and Israeli strategy is that we think that nobody sees what we're doing, that everybody is stupid, that we can get away with anything. But it's absolutely wrong. Everything is transparent. Everybody sees, everybody understands, even if they're not saying it out loud. And that includes the Americans and the Europeans and the financial institutions and the uh, media influencers and the journalists and so on. They all see. It's like in the Warren Buffett famous story. The water has dropped and Israel is caught swimming naked.
0: What do you think about the way that Ukraine's president, Zelensky, has been managing uh, the situation uh, with a lot of these public statements and videos of himself in Kiev? Some people say that it's bringing up the fighting spirit. Others say that it might look a bit uh, panicky. How, How do you look at it from a strategic point of view?
1: I think he's doing an amazing job. Uh, I think it's absolutely rising to the occasion beyond anybody's expectations. And there's a lot of positive things to say about it. However, there is uh, something of a negative aspect, which is kind of more general. The fact that somebody like that, who actually made his career playing a prime minister or a president on on a TV show and being a, a reality TV star, got elected in the first place and is now doing so well on the world stage, doesn't speak well for the way that, you know, democracies choose their leaders and the type of uh, personalities and leaders that are electable in this day and age. This is not what we would like to see. Somebody whose only experience is of an actor. It, you know a few years ago it would have sounded absurd somebody like that when he was
0: when he was elected, people talked about it as some kind of a joke. the guy played a president on TV now he's president. and I think that's maybe one of the reasons why now a lot of people are feeling this outburst of respect for him because he was ridiculed in the beginning so much.
1: True. but also again, we have to face reality here and reality is that if you have played the part of a president, you are able to play on screen. On a very
0: successful uh, show. Yeah,
1: yeah, but on screen and not in the real world. You are able to play the part in the real world. And really the difference is almost non-existent. That's a very sad thought. Everything is a show.
0: (laughs) Do do, do you think though it's it's the right thing for the Israeli Knesset to give, he asked to give a speech to the Knesset and the speaker uh, kind of uh, hesitated on it. What do you think we should have done?
1: I don't think I'll surprise anyone if I'll say that, obviously, we should have agreed, we should have invited him, it should have been our own initiative. We saw what, uh, what uh, really a remarkable and, and emotional speech he gave to the British Parliament and to other.
0: Yeah, I, I wanna insert here a small segment from that where I think he tried to bring a bit of like a Churchillian aspect to the speech.
1: We will not give up and we will not lose. We will fight till the end at sea, in the air, we will continue fighting for our land, whatever the cost. We will fight in the forests, in the fields, on the shores, in the streets. So I think it was heartening and it it was a really an impressive um, gesture by the old democracy, an important democracy of the UK, towards the young and fighting democracy of Ukraine and Israel should have done exactly the same we should have invited him we should have initiated the Knesset of course should have convened especially and all these pathetic excuses that were given as if you know we're under construction or we're on a holiday I'm really insulted by these arguments as as an Israeli citizen
0: well Let's hope that maybe uh, some kind of invitation will still be delivered. I, I saw the mayor of Tel Aviv, Ron Huldai, said that maybe we can do some kind of a public event in uh, Habima Square. Um, we'll see where it goes.
1: There's something interesting I want to point out here. Israel, unfortunately, does not have any kind of a referendum system on issues. I'm quite convinced that if we had this uh, in, in place, and if we were to go to a referendum, let's say, on Israel's overall position vis-a-vis the conflict, or on the issue of the amount of refugees that we should receive, or on the issue of whether or not we should invite Zelensky to make a speech in the Knesset, there would have been an overwhelming majority of Israelis who would support all of those. But unfortunately, the government here is uh, looking at public opinion in a skewed way, and the entire system is skewed in such a way that they are actually uh, acting in, uh, strategically and operationally and on many issues against the overall interest of the public.
0: Yeah, and and it it has been interesting to see thousands of Israelis go out to demonstrations uh, over this war in Ukraine. I don't remember in many years that a war in a foreign country brought out these numbers of people to to the streets. Now, we know there are many Israelis who are originally from Ukraine and Russia. We have a large Eastern European uh, Aliyah wave that came here in the last 30 years. But still, remarkable to see these numbers. And I think it it proves your point that the public opinion in Israel is mostly on that side. Iran thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: And after the break, a conversation with Anat Peled about Israelis who have gone to Ukraine to fight against Putin's invading army. One of the more interesting stories to emerge from the war in Ukraine has been the foreign legion, people from all over the world who are coming to Ukraine to help the country in its battle against Russia. And that also includes some Israelis. In a recent article in Haaretz, Anat Peled and Milan Cherny discussed this fascinating issue. And now we're going to hear from Anat about these Israelis who are putting everything on the line and going to fight in Ukraine. Hello, Anat Peled. Hi, Amir. Uh, You recently wrote a fascinating article for us on HaArts.com together with Milan Cherny, titled The Israelis Fighting in Ukraine's Foreign Legion. And they are telling you basically stories of what brought them, people who live here in Israel, to now when basically everybody's trying to get out of Ukraine, do the opposite thing, fly into the country and join the war.
2: Yes. And I can say that the Israeli government is not excited about this. They have a travel warning uh, issued for Ukraine, and they're trying to get people out. So it's really hard to get numbers to know how many people we're talking about. But we estimate it's dozens, but it could be more.
0: So who are these people? Give us a few examples. And again, I really recommend the listeners to, after listening to the conversation, go and read it for themselves. But, But tell us a bit about these people.
2: Okay, yeah. So in general, we're talking about people who made Aliyah. Many who made Aliyah, some people were born in Israel, but they come from um, the Russian-speaking world, many from Ukraine, but not only. Could be people from Russia or other former Soviet countries. And basically, um, we opened the article with the story of Yoroslav, who it's a pseudonym because not all his family knows that he's fighting in Ukraine. But um, we see in his story um, kind of something really interesting. So he made Aliyah from Ukraine at age 12 with his family, defines himself as very Zionist, served in a tank uh, battalion for three years.
0: In the Israeli military.
2: In the Israeli military. Yes, that's important to emphasize. And just got out. And the, basically the, the war with uh, Russia began. And he still has very strong ties to uh, Khalkiv, which is where he's from. His grandma's there, his childhood friends, and he suddenly felt that he had to go back. So he joined the foreign legion.
0: Just got out of service in the Israeli military. And while most Israelis at that point in their life, they do some kind of a trip. They go maybe to India or they do what we call the Israel trail, you know, backpacking in Israel for half a year. This guy instead goes to fight in Kharkiv.
2: Yes. So basically he did get have a time to do a trip. But guess where he did his trip? Ukraine.
0: To Ukraine. <laughs> ah, okay. Yes.
2: Okay. So he has very. He was there right before, but um, yeah. This is this is he. He basically told us that he was terrified. He kind of laughed and said, "Yeah, I'm a I'm a human being. I'm really scared, but I feel like I have to do this."
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, and in the in the beginning of the article, you quote him saying, "I love Israel, and I'm a patriot, uh, but Ukraine is my motherland."
2: Yes, he called it his motherland, his moledet in Hebrew.
0: How common is that feeling among the people you interviewed for this article?
2: I think it was quite common. um, And I think it's really unprecedented in Israeli history. I mean, I'm doing a master's degree at Oxford on on Zionism. And I think it's very unusual to hear. um, I mean, if you think about the history of Zionism, it was basically based on the rejection of the diaspora, what was called or what's called the Galut creating a new Israeli identity that was in contrast to the old Jew, Um, and then the creation of the new Jew in the state of Israel when it was founded. I think it's quite common. A lot of people stress that they had a really strong connection to to Ukraine, and they were not traitors or anything going to fight for a foreign army, but they just felt it was kind of a, a call of duty.
0: Does the fact that Ukraine now have a Jewish president, Volodymyr Zelensky, have any impact on their will to go and fight there?
2: No, they didn't mention that to me. It doesn't mean that it isn't a factor on some fighters because we didn't interview all of them, but they gave two main reasons to why uh, they're going. The first one, I think, was for many of them, they have a familial connection to Ukraine. So like Yaroslav, um, grandma's there hiding in her basement in Kharkiv right now, um, or, or maybe... Um, roots from there. The second reason is really interesting and it actually echoes a lot of other foreign fighters that are recently, have recently been interviewed in the press around the world and they talk about this kinds of once in a generation showdown between democracy and dictatorship. They really feel that it's ideals drawing them, that Ukraine is first in line. If they don't go fight for democracy, then you know other cities in Europe are going to fall. So there's these two kind of circles, the familial and the universal, Um, And that's what we heard from many, from many people.
0: One person you interviewed is called Anatoli, um, and he's not just someone who has fought with the Ukrainian military, but also now helps coordinate the arrival of Israelis trying to join this international legion. What did he tell you about the profile of these people?
2: So basically, just to get it, how people join this legion is basically it's through the embassies around the world, the Ukrainian embassy. So you have to go to the embassy and give your details and then they give you contacts in Ukraine and you go join. He helps do that. And he said that um, many people really are kind of from the former Soviet Union, but they just feel that he used a very nice sentence. He said the heart of the Jewish world is in Ukraine right now. That's what they feel.
0: And you said the Israeli government is not happy about having its own citizens go and fight there. Have they tried to stop the phenomenon?
2: This is very interesting. So first of all, in terms of numbers, A lot of countries are not excited about this, not only Israel. So the numbers we have about the foreign legion that was founded at the end of February is so um, we reached out to the foreign ministry of Israel to um, to give us maybe an estimate. Uh, They said they do not keep um, they're not tracking the numbers and they have a travel warning out. Um, I don't I think that this is kind of unprecedented. Basically, there always have been maybe a few Israelis here and there who went to volunteer for things, for example, joining the Kurds during the fight um, against ISIS or after the 2014 um, Crimea invasion. But this is much higher numbers. They're not excited. They're trying to get people out. So it's unclear what's going to happen. I think in general, there's shaky legal ground about foreign fighters going to fight uh, for Ukraine. Um for example in Australia it's illegal to join based on the Islamic state it's it's um illegal to join these kinds of foreign wars so different governments take different stances Israel could become more harsh but it's unclear
0: Yeah it's interesting from two perspectives I think first of all historically it brings to mind the Spanish civil war and the volunteers who came back then to Spain. And I think you guys even mentioned that in the article. Also from an Israeli perspective, we also have a phenomenon here in Israel of people who make Aliyah to enlist in the military.
2: Exactly. So it's like reverse Aliyah kind of in a way.
0: Yeah. People who already based their life here in Israel and are going. Have you had a chance to to, to talk to these guys since the article was published? How was it received? I mean, is it something that people are talking about in Ukraine?
2: We're in touch with uh, one specific person on the ground, and um, they're very busy. It's been hard to kind of get information about them. More and more information is slowly kind of coming out about the Foreign Legion, and we're only going to see more kind of in the press. But um, yeah, they were very excited to tell their stories. It wasn't hard to get them to talk to us.
0: Well, and it was definitely fascinating to read. So you guys wrote about the a few uh, Israelis who go there in general, uh, how big is this foreign legion and who are the countries that have uh, contributed the largest number of fighters?
2: Yeah. So um, according to the Ukrainian foreign minister, there are 20,000 people from 52 different countries who joined the foreign legion. It was founded at the end of February. Um, So what we're seeing is that most of the recruits are really from former Soviet Union countries. So we're seeing many Georgians and people from uh, Belarus. But a large contingent has been um, Americans, Canadians, there's British people. And we're seeing that basically it's a lot of ex-military people. So they already have the required military experience to go fight in a war.
0: Do we know if they've had any impact on the fighting so far?
2: It's really unclear. I think... um, It's kind of a mystery right now. Uh, There's all kinds of different stories and different publications coming up, but we'll have to wait and see.
0: Well, definitely a fascinating story to keep following on. Anat Pellet, thank you very much for joining us. And again, encourage the readers to read your article with Milan Cherny about the Israelis of the foreign legion.
2: Thanks for having me. And that's it for
0: today's episode. For more great reporting and analysis on the situation in Ukraine, go to haaretz.com. Thank you to our producer, Aaron Ehrlich, and to you listeners. Until our next meeting, shalom from Tel Aviv.